Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello everyone and welcome back to the World Cup pod here on Anfield Index. On today's pod we'll be recapping the midweek games as Mo Salah grabs himself a, a World Cup Finals goal but the dream obviously came to a pretty sobering end against host Russia. Uh, and Sadio Mane's Senegal secured the first win for an African side in this year's tournament. So we'll be covering that for sure as well as the other games that have taken place so far. The latest of those being Iran's narrow defeat to Spain um, with a somersault th- uh, throwing that was aborted in the 94th minute, so we'll definitely have to talk about that. But um, joining me on the pod, I'm delighted to have journalist and broadcaster Carl Anker, who's currently working with the Players' Tribune on their World Cup coverage. And later on, we'll also be joined by the familiar voice of AI's Nina Kauser to discuss Egypt and just how hungry Mo Salah will be next season. Uh, Carl, welcome on. Hello, how are you doing? Very good, yeah. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying just gorging on football every night. Yeah, I feel like this. I'm going to develop expectations that this is just a permanent thing, um, and then by the time it wears off, the Premier League will be back, I'm sure. And then we'll, we'll be back on the, sort of the, the familiar routine of what's it, match day, match the weekends, Friday night football, etc. But um, for now, so stay with the World Cup. Then, and what have you made of the tournament as a whole so far? I'm sort of asking everybody that, that we get on these pods, just what have you made of this tournament? There was so much made about it ahead of the, the tournament actually starting, but. Now that it has done, no nil-nil draws have been thrown up yet, of course. Um, a lot of set-piece goals, a lot of late goals, penalties. Um, what have you made of it? It's been a, a novelty. Um, so if you want to count your 2010 World Cups, uh, 2010 in South Africa, which I, I personally really enjoyed, but a lot of people thought was was boring because of a lot of teams choosing to sit back and just apply the low block. Then you had 2014, which was the sort of beginning of pressing football with you had your seven ones, your five ones and the destruction of Spain and whatnot. Um and this one feels somewhere in the middle. So you've got a lot of teams applying the low block like in two thousand ten. But you also have a lot of interesting football styles like in two thousand fourteen. Um as you mentioned there's a lot of set piece goals being scored, which I think is a side effect of VAR being used as well. Um so Yeah penalties for sure. Yeah. Yeah. People talking about that record being blasted, but I mean, what, what would you expect if, for once, there's something to hold you to account when you drag someone to the box? Exactly um, my thoughts. Um, I've mentioned this. I was on Talking Football podcast um, this week, and I mentioned how we've had over a third of goals scored by set pieces, and I think this is to do with acclimatization to to the World Cup. So I think quite a few players have figured out how to how the ball works, how the telestar ball works when the ball is stationary, but I haven't quite figured out how to apply the correct weight weight on a ball um, when it's moving, which is why so many of these counter-attacks are falling apart in, in the final pass. Um, I think, you know, we've done match day one, so everyone's played once now. Some teams, we're getting to the bit where some teams have played twice. 
I think we're going to see a little bit of an uptick in the continuous footballing quality, shall we say. So some of these counter-attacks are going to come off. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. This, is, this World Cup's turned out a lot better than I thought it would turn out, but it's also exactly as weird as I thought it would be. Yeah, it's, it's strange, I think, because, of course, when you're growing up alongside these World Cups and, and, and these Euros as well, you have certain emotional attachments to them. There are certain moments that you, that you remember, certain players that you remember for sure, thinking back to sort of the original Ronaldo and so many of the sort of tournaments I saw. You know, sort of when he was in his prime, you really associated him with those tournaments and things like that. But it feels like I'm not sure whether it's that, I mean, I, I don't totally understand football now. I'm sure I, I never totally will understand football. But <laughs> I feel like I understand it better now than I did do back then. And it's, it's definitely made it more interesting. I, I know what you mean about the, Sort of the different styles we've been seeing and the, you know, the, the low block, the pressing and people sometimes, you know, there's quite a lot of hate for sort of these different styles of football, but given the sort of the massive gulp and resources of, of, of some of these teams, you know, when you see a game like tonight's, for example, where it's Iran versus Spain, and you just thought you knew exactly what Iran was going to do. They're going to have six at the back or some sort of hybrid formation to try and counter out what Spain are going to do. Um, but I, I don't think there's any less, to, uh, any less respect in that, I think, especially the way in which they execute it. Um, it's pretty incredible. I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that um, for sure. Um, I don't want to touch too much on the England game. I think that's, that's already been done to death. Um, but we'll move on to yesterday's games. And I just want to start with Senegal-Poland. Then um, This one was interesting for me, Carl, because um, a lot of the pre-match discussion around this thing seemed to favour Poland you know, as the ones who were expected to win. Um, obviously, you, you had a, a, a few sort of big name players in there. Uh, Lewandowski probably being the most um, big name of those stars in, in their team up front. Um, but of course, Senegal run out of the game two one winners. Um, and I've seen a bunch of discussion about why Senegal did win. Plenty of sort of lazy stereotypes around the, the power and pace of this African team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but to me, it just seemed like they, they played cleverer football. Um, and you can debate, I guess, forever about that. That second goal, exactly how how <laughs> clever it was. But um, what did you think about um, both sort of the pre-match chatter about Poland um, and Senegal's performance on the day? I think there's a there's a there's a, a failing in a lot of football conversation where we mistake familiarity for quality. Yeah, for sure. So just because you know who Robert Lewandowski is and you see Robert Lewandowski play six or seven games a season as the Champions League doesn't necessarily mean Lewandowski that you see for Poland is going to be the Lewandowski you see for Bayern Munich. It doesn't necessarily mean he's even going to be the Lewandowski you saw when he put four past Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final. Um, I mentioned this before the game where people are, oh, you know, Poland have Lewandowski, they've got Milic, they've got Piszczek, and I've said they've got old Lewandowski, they've got old Piszczek, they've got a very broken Milic who hasn't really recovered from his ACL injury for when he Signed to Napoli very recently. Yeah, and and if, if anyone has seen Lewandowski in that Champions League, was it semi semi final that he was in? He, he, he wasn't exactly setting the world on fire in that either. So yeah. yeah. And um, so anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you play FIFA 18 right now, um, there's the World Cup mode you can play where you can play quite. You know, they've got all 32 nations. They've got pretty much recognizable kits. Um, squads are 85 percent complete. And something I found when I was doing quite a few of the simulations in there is um, the brackets tend to, if you leave the computer to his own devices, the brackets tend to overrate players or teams that have players that play in the top five leagues in Europe. So 
if you run a FIFA 18, let it run its own devices, nine times out of ten, something happens. Belgium ends up playing Brazil in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, and Belgium knocks them out every single time. Not because, you know, we believe Belgium are a superior football nation, because simply loads more Belgian players play in the Premier League or play in those top five leagues where they are, you know, brand names. And I think we get that a lot when we discuss football. Um, I couldn't name more than three football players in the Senegalese team without doing proper research. And those three Senegalese players I know of are the ones that play in the Premier League. Um, and because I can simply name more Polish players, leads a lot of football conversations to make people think Poland's a superior team. Just because you can name what side has more, just because you can name players from one side more than the other one doesn't necessarily make them better. The Poland side that went out, they played a very retrograde 4-4-2. As I said before, their players are old. You know, If Poland makes it to 2022, very few of the players that are at this World Cup will make it there. Whereas Senegal were, you know, very compact, very, very well organized, had a great game plan and just outboxed Poland. It was a really good result to see if you're a fan of uh, sub-Saharan African football, which I am. No, for sure. I think completely agree with you, especially when you look at the lineup there. As you mentioned, you've got Milik, you've got Lewandowski, Kirschek, Blazikowski, um, even, even Chesney, familiar names, but as you mentioned, are coming towards to the not the tail end, but yeah, definitely not in the prime of their careers. Perhaps there's a couple of exceptions there with Zielinski, but um, and there are some familiar names that, as you mentioned, in that Senegal team in terms of uh, you know, Sadio Mane, Niang, um, Koulibaly, even from Napoli as well. So there, there is undoubted quality there. Sadio Mane, of course, from Liverpool, um, captaining the side. Didn't actually think he was um, that impressive on the day, but in terms of the leadership that he provided, I'm, I'm sure it was effective. Um, I think what's really interesting about the Senegalese team is that he didn't need to be. No, um, exactly. So too too often with um, developing nations, I think I'm okay to say that, mm-hmm. um, you get this concept of the star player plus 10, whereas Senegal didn't, didn't line up like that. The, the game plan was not give it to Mane and hope Mane can conjure some magic in the similar way that Poland's game plan was pretty much give it to Lewandowski and see what he can do. Um, this Senegalese team is good. They're, they're my pick to be the, the farthest reaching African nation in this World Cup. Um, providing the brackets work out nicely, that could mean quarterfinals. It could just mean last 16. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, just, just about where you thought they actually were going to get to. So that's interesting that you say that. And I mean, I guess if you even look at that group, um, ahead of time, Japan, Senegal, Colombia, and Poland, um, like you're saying with those simulations that you're doing on FIFA, I'm sure plenty of people are going, oh, Colombia, Poland, there are lots of recognisable names in there. Those are the teams that we think are going to be the ones who are topping the group. And of course, as we have that, you know, as we go through that first round of fixtures, um, you know, Japan surprising Colombia, of course, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail, and Senegal as well. Not necessarily, necessarily surprising Poland, but just outplaying them. So I guess that, that leads us quite nicely onto uh, Colombia, Japan, and of course, this is a, another game where um, it's an, an upset. But I, I think for sure, when, when you look at that Colombia team, you are expecting them to have the quality to overcome a Japanese side, especially with the fact that this Japanese side sacked their manager, what, what was it, two months prior to the tournament? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't exactly a Spain situation there. Um, they didn't necessarily have the quality to sort of make up for that shortcoming. But um, on the day itself, I mean, it, it, was this the case, in your opinion, of just I mean, a red card that early in any game of football 
was going to change the dynamic of the game. Um, and the fact that Kagawa was on hand to you know, tuck, tuck the penalty away so nicely, um, it did change the entire flow of the game for Colombia, didn't it? It did. It did. Colombia, um, it's still, this is the most interesting group, um, group H. You've got a, you got a team from four different, you know, four teams, four different continents. They've all got differing styles of play to make every matchup very interesting. It's a bit rock, paper, scissors in this group. Um, you've got counter attacking sides against possession based sides against, um, set piece specialists against, you know, uh, flighty inside forwards, which I find very intriguing. Um, before going into this game, I thought Colombia were going to win simply because they've got very, very robust centre backs now. Um, you know, Davison Sanchez plays in the Premier League. I think he's, you know, to completely count, you know, be hypocritical about what I said about I can recognise more players, so I think they're better. I thought Colombia were going to win because I could recognise more of their players. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think this Columbia side's good. Not as good as what they were in 2014, but Falcao is integrating himself back into the side in a very nice way. And they played some really good patches of football, even with 10 men. But Japan, to their credit, you know, they've been, since they sacked their coach, they were throwing loads of ideas at the wall, essentially going, what sort of football are we going to try and play at this World Cup? Are we going to go on with the possession base what we had in our previous coach? Are we going to try something new? Um, and their friendlies were very, very odd. They, they lost um, quite comprehensively to Garner um, in one of those friendlies you have where you pick a side that is close to another side you will face in the World Cup. So obviously Garner were meant to be a standard from Senegal. Garner roundly defeated Japan despite the fact Garner's FA had now been dissolved and whatnot. So I was worried for Japan. But no, they played really smart passing football, didn't lose their heads. Um, every now and again you get those performances where they can't score a goal and you think the other team's going to beat them. But this Japan side, you know, they got their penalty early. They could have got three or four, but rather than panic when they couldn't get that second goal, they just kept ticking over and eventually they came good. Um, I don't think they can escape this group. I think now Senegal beating Poland, I think we're going to look at a Senegal, Colombia 1-2 in these groups. Your thoughts? No, I pretty much agree. I mean, I think at the start of the pod when you were talking about sort of players figuring out the ball a little bit and then a common theme in what we'd seen was um, teams that perhaps don't have as much quality in it, you know, doing really, really well up until the final third and then not being able to execute that final pass or um, the finishing touch to these pretty comprehensive counter-attacking moves. Mexico being sort of a really, really obvious example of that. Peru, an obvious example of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're seeing these sides really well tactically set up by the manager and uh, I thought Mexico especially there because of just the way they cut through Germany. And I guess you can argue about how Germany set themselves up and whether they're over committed on, on occasion. But um, you know, the way in which they set themselves up worked perfectly for them. They engineered so many opportunities. Um, but it was that final either shot from a winger cutting inside or perhaps even just that, that final pass for a tap-in that was often there for them if they actually executed it correctly. And I felt the same way about Japan. I, I, I've seen on a number of occasions, and I thought Kagawa, you know, just excluding the penalty for one thing, I thought he actually played really well as well and uh, showed a great deal of maturity. I think you can sort of tell why people have rated him so highly over the years in terms of what he can bring to the side, even the other players around him. Um, definite sense of calm that sort of exuded from him, if, if you can sort of judge that from a player. But I thought um, the way in which he was throwing the, uh, throwing the ball through, there were plenty of chances, even at the far post as well, for players to cut inside and then really finish it off. 
Um, and yeah, you're, you're noticing people doing either everything right up until the ball suddenly you're slicing off their foot miles wide or just maybe under hitting the ball in the, in, in, in the final, final stage of the move. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure what Poland are going to, um, bring to their final games, to be honest. And, um, I would expect Colombia to regroup and given the quality they have, as you mentioned, there lots of players who are familiar to us, but really, I think as well, based on the quality they've got, um, you hired to Dallas and Sanchez there, but I thought, I, I completely forgot about Quintero as well. And I, I, mm. I think I even heard that he came to go to Argentina, um, to get games and, and, and fitness ahead of this. Um, may well be wrong on that. Isquero obviously is in the, in the Premier League. Quadrado, well sort of versed with him at this stage. Falcao, um, James Rodriguez was actually on the bench. I'm not sure what, whether that was for fitness issues or whatever, but he, he came on later on as well. So you would have assumed that they would have, would have had enough quality. Um, but as you mentioned, sides that have kept things tidy, like Japan have done, like others have done as well, uh, Iceland is especially holding out against Argentina, they've proven that it is possible to um, beat these sides that you perhaps would have favoured ahead of the games. So moving on to today's games, and I think we were just talking ahead of the pod about perhaps this final game, Iran versus Spain, despite not being the most thrilling, I guess, in terms of back and forth, actually, it was pretty one-sided. Um, despite Iran showing some good, um, some good attacks following Spain taking the lead, um, slightly underwhelming day. I mean, started off with, uh, Portugal versus Morocco. What did you make of that game? Cause I, I've seen Morocco twice now and just, I feel, feel dreadful for them based on they haven't played badly. Perhaps that final no. thing that we talked about there, not executing that final pass or that final, um, shot on goal, but yeah, I thought they dominated today and, Lost thanks to another Cristiano Ronaldo moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Portugal figured out how to win ugly. They won Euro 2016, having only won one knockout game in 90 minutes, and they've got four points from uh, two knockout games in the World Cup, where they very easily could have gone away with none. Um, but you know, as long as you've got a, a forward of Cristiano Ronaldo's quality, you've always got a boxer's chance of getting something out of it. Um, it's unfortunate for Morocco. They've got her run They're very well coached. I think they're going to be um, there or thereabouts come AFCON. But sometimes you can be unlucky in knockout football when you're some, when you've only got three games to get it absolutely right. Two three games to get it right. You can just the the data doesn't quite go in your favour. They'll be back again. They've got they're doing really well. Not only are they doing really well currently, but they've also figured out how to get some of their foreign-born players to declare for Morocco rather than their countries of birth now. So very similar to what Algeria did ahead of 2014 World Cup where a lot of players shunned turning, um, declaring for France instead of, but instead decided to play for Algeria. We're now seeing quite a few Dutch-based Moroccan players choose to play for Morocco rather than um, the Netherlands and whatnot. This obviously frustrates a lot of people in the Netherlands, but the argument is, if you're a young player and you're playing for Morocco right now, you've got a better chance of going to the World Cup than you do if you're playing for the Netherlands. Um, so Morocco, you know, I think this is a, a football term a bit too early for them, but they're going to do well in the next four to six years. No, yeah, I, I, I'd agree as well, for sure. I think in terms of the way they're being coached, 
um, not only the talent pool that's going to be at their disposal, as, as you mentioned rightly there. And, and I think obviously the World Cup is it's an opportunity for us to spot players that um, well, sometimes it, it can be a false dawn in terms of us identifying players who have great tournaments and then go on to have you know, pretty average sort of careers um, at, at a club level. I mean, I mean, one particular example, say the Euros last time around, wasn't it? Uh, Sissoko for France being used a lot by Deschamps um, in that tournament. But, <laughs> Don't get me started on Showing lots of athleticism, I think, yeah, tons of it, actually doing a pretty good job for the team in terms of the job he was asked to do, in terms of pretty much a workhorse role, to be honest. But um, he assigned for a record FIFA Spurs, and then, of course, the the reality and pretty much the facts of the rest of his career sort of set in. Um, so I'm so a little bit sort of reluctant to sort of throw all my eggs into the basket in, 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 in spotting players or scouting players, but what did you make of Ziyech in terms of this? Obviously, he plays for Ajax. Um, I thought he was a player who, who sort of stood out to, in, in this game, if not for doing the final ball, for always being there or thereabouts, getting himself into good positions. Did he stand out to you? No. He, he, if I was being very blunt, I'd, I'd say he's probably put 10 million off his oh, potential wow. transfer fee this, this uh, window. He is... I know this sounds somewhat disrespectful. He is too good to stay at Ajax. I think he's he's going to leave either this summer or next summer. He's going to get that big money move. But I think it's gone from him being a potential Tottenham Hotspur signing to being a potential Everton signing. Right. If that makes sense in yeah, the yeah. in the hierarchy of Premier League teams right now. No, I think it makes sense. I, mean, I actually thought he was perhaps a little bit younger than actually he's twenty five years old now. I think there's one of these. Ajax starlets that just stays there forever. But um, in terms of the Portugal team, then as well, interesting thing that's that's currently developing, of course, is that story at Sporting Lisbon with the fact that a number of players are um, terminating their contracts and becoming free agents. I think quite a few of them. I think you just saw Rui Patricia sign for sign for Wolves on a four-year deal, which is something that you know, so four or five years ago would have seemed completely unimaginable to say in a sentence. Mm. Um, William Carvalho also a free agent, I believe. Gelson Martins. Um, what do you make of that story? I mean, it hasn't seemed to affect the players who are actually involved in the in the World Cup from the Portuguese side, but um, sort of the developing story there with those players um, freeing themselves from the club. Um, it's pretty unprecedented to see sort of the way in which it seemed almost uh, violence that was encouraged by, um, or if not incited by, people in the sporting Lisbon hierarchy. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's very very uh, sad to see the higher-ups at a club essentially declare war on their own players. Um, uh, even sadder still that players have been forced to take their futures into their own hands and terminate their contracts like this. But, you know, dark is before dawn and whatnot. Wolves have got themselves arguably one of the best, better goalkeepers in the Premier League now. Like, Rui Patricio is easily... I'd put him, you know, before... Arsenal bought Leno for their goalkeeper. I'd say he was easily Europa League you know, of the top six quality goalkeeping. Um, and that's going to Wolves, you know, a team that's been recently promoted. We obviously know what's going on in Wolves since the previous season. And uh, obviously we know Wolves and their connection to George Mendes and uh, the money they have behind the club. We know they, they can claim personnel such as Ruben Neves, who you know, came over from Porto and tore up the championship. Um, and I'll be interested to see what other players tell him. William Carvalho could walk in, would improve 
a Liverpool midfield or a Tottenham Hotspur midfield, I think he'd be a value asset for Manchester United. Um, this could be a very fun realignment of uh, a lot of clubs. This isn't quite Monaco levels of everyone's leaving as it was after 1617, but this could be a, this could be a real fun uh, experiment in football. And this Portugal side has an interesting blend of uh, experiencing youth, and they've they've learned how to win ugly. You know, if the way the brackets are shaping up in these Euro, um, Euros, the way the brackets are shaping up for the knockout stages, if Portugal meets a side like say France, I'd have to put my money behind Portugal because Portugal know how to do the ugly, nasty stuff, whereas France in Didier Deschamps doesn't know his strongest eleven, can't really get the best out of a team containing Pogba, Griezmann, and Mbappe. It's still very much reliant on someone like Olivier Giroud to be your focal point. In knockout games like this, you, you'd prefer Portugal to do it because Portugal understand more so than any other football, well, more so than a lot of football nations at this World Cup, that winning an ugly 1-0 doesn't matter because as long as it gets you to the next round, it doesn't matter if you play pretty football. No, I would agree. And I think also with, with Portugal and, and with a number of other teams at this World Cup, I think what you'll often see in these tournaments is the team that has the clarity of purpose about them. They, they know what they're set up to do. They know how to do it. As you mentioned, in terms of winning ugly or feeding Ronaldo for those moments, and we'll come to talk about him in a second, but um, those teams do tend to triumph over the ones that may have more stars, more quality to them, as you mentioned in France, but it's not exactly clear what the plan is or if there's too much faith or trust in the, in that plan or, um, in, in the first place, really. So, Just a final point on Portugal before, before we move on from this one is um, Lots was made of Cristiano Ronaldo's performance in the European game against Spain. Pretty hard not to, to mention him after that hat trick. And he scored again today. So, yeah, Morocco team going to sleep in the box and allowing um, somebody of the quality of Ronaldo a free header. Never a great idea from the corner. But um, more and more, I think, what we're noticing about Ronaldo is that he's becoming, that he can be a peripheral figure in these games and have yeah, big, big moments. He, he's become the. Yeah, the greatest goal scorer in terms of having those moments rather than perhaps being the greatest all-round player or influence on a game. Or you could argue goals are the greatest influence on a game, of course. But um, what do you make about this incarnation of Ronaldo that we've seen um, so far at the tournament? And um, is, is he sort of perfectly designed for tournament football at the moment? Oh, yeah. Like, this, this is... There's a reason why it's taken late era Ronaldo to string together this Champions League run with Real Madrid and it's a reason why it's taken Ronaldo to get into his late years to string together this uh, very impressive run with Portugal because you know it's, it's very hard to talk about Ronaldo without also talking about Messi or vice versa um, Ronaldo in his current state improves a weaker side improves a weak side far greater than Messi does because when Ronaldo is on a, a side that can't get it done he doesn't bother with all the paraphernalia of football anymore. He, he wants the school goal. As far as he's concerned is, he's getting old, old a bit. He can't do everything. So rather than focus himself on doing everything, he's just going to try and get a goal. So he's not going to drop deep to pick up balls and try and pass it through. You know, if, if the team is, if your team is struggling to get past a low block, he's not going to drop down to the center circle like Messi might do to try and become a playmaker. He's going to stay up top. Always. And he's got enough pace. He's got amazing movement. He's got that ability to go thin or change his near post run in a split second which is what he did against Morocco that again you've got that box's chance which means 
he can always be half trusted at the very least to, to dish you out a goal. The fact that, you know, that very small thing from Spain is that he's no longer hitting the knuckleball style free kick, but he's now going with his instep, which hopefully means his free kick totals might start going up. Um, this is a guy who has honed everything in his game now to just be about scoring goals, which means in a knockout competition where start, you know, you get no points for style, you get all the points for just putting the ball in the back of the net. Portugal are a lock for the last 16. And then after that, you never know. If the bracket's good, the bracket's good. No, I know what you mean. I think it's often interesting in these tournaments how players who um, don't contribute much else to the game other than, as you mentioned, those moments, goals, either, either set-piece delivery, for example, you could beckon in the past. Um, and plenty of people are still talking about Harry Kane's performance after that England game. And I was another one who's just sort of looking at his sort of overall contribution to the performance prior to him scoring that winner, of course, and thinking has sort of been another peripheral figure here, hasn't contributed too much, and then of course pops up with that goal, and then you think about these sorts of tournaments and the players who you so heavily associate with them, and of course there are exceptions where there are players who have huge influence on games regardless of whether they're scoring or not, you remember them, but um, you think of Miroslav Klose, for example, because of Germany's legacy um, at these tournaments, and, and, and just the legacy he left because of always being in the right place, Muller had that association for himself, uh, for a great deal of time as well. Not saying Kane's going to follow either of their sort of footsteps in terms of records. Um, but you look at him, you look at Ronaldo, players who are just existing currently for moments, and they can be effective at these tournaments, for sure. And I think, yeah, as you mentioned, it, it, he's an example of somebody who's completely honed everything. There's not a sinew being overstretched for anything that doesn't need to be done. Um, that's why it's so odd, I think, in the, in the early stages of that Spain game where you're seeing him doing shuttle runs, uh, you know, to get involved in counter-attacks and stuff, similar to sort of the Ronaldo of old. And it was yeah, interesting to see how he's linking up with Geddesh as well, who's, a, I think, obviously a young talent who did have a better performance at second time running against Morocco, albeit not perhaps the one he, he would have liked. But the game, I think, prior to Iran-Spain, we were talking about the game that was sort of a slugfest, um, Uruguay, Saudi Arabia. I, I actually, initially, before the tournament have thought this could be a game where Suarez or Cavani you know, notched a few goals here to perhaps put themselves a little bit ahead in terms of you know, unlikely candidates for the golden boot etc because you do have to factor in especially after Saudi Arabia losing the opening game in that sort of fashion you know, we were wondering how they'd respond um, very tight here um, just a 1-0 win that leaves Suarez goal following a goalkeeper's mistake um, this Uruguay side if you mentioned Poland looked old um Lots of people focusing on Cavani and Suarez at the start of the tournament, but it's actually proving to be Jimenez and uh, Godin who have been the more important partnership so far, would you say? Oh, yeah. The, uh, we talk about Holland being up. This Uruguay squad is old. You know, Cavani and Suarez are both 31. Cavani's had a, you know, he's regularly, regularly scheduled good season for Paris Saint-Germain. You know, domestic trouble, fine. Paris Saint-Germain once again, you know, Unconvincing in Europe. Um, Suarez had a very rocky season this year. He, he had a, it was very odd. He, he seemed to be playing as if he had a World Cup hangover, but there wasn't a World Cup in the summer. Um, took him a good six months before he, he figured out what was going on and it, it put a massive burden on Messi. Um, and Paulinho, oddly enough. Um, and it, again, he seems that he, he looks 
I want to say he looks tired, but when you consider the season before him, he just looks old now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you consider how many games Suarez has played, has got under his belt, you consider the way Suarez plays football, it's, it's only to be expected that we're going to see this little downturn in form. Um, Uruguay are similar to Portugal in that, you know, they don't mind winning ugly. That's, you know, Uruguayan football is a very much a response and informed by how Argentina play football. So Argentina pride themselves on playing um, gambettas, you know, amazing, dribbly, fluid football. And Uruguay being their neighbours in South America and being one of their big rivals are like, well, F that. We're going to be a direct response and opposite to you. We're going to be gritty, nasty, set-piece heavy football. Um, which means, again, they understand how to win ugly, which gives them an advantage. Um, but they, they're crying out for another game. They are desperate for someone to pass the balls to Suarez and Cavani, and Cavani. Whereas, because you get that problem that because Suarez is that helper skelter, do everything sort of striker, he's dropping too deep to try and play as an number 10 for Cavani and he's not quite coming off. Um, my bad prediction for the World Cup was that Uruguay wanted to make it out of that group. They're going to make it out of that group, but I think last 16 only absolutely swept. Yeah, no, I think I can see that too. I think there is, um, there's a know-how about them. I think, uh, uh, as you mentioned with Jimenez and Godin at the back, I mean, you, they're going to keep you in games even when you're not playing flowing football. And I'd agree many times for Liverpool, you see Suarez dropping deep, um, when games weren't going his way to try and dictate or influence them. But then, you lose sort of the impact that you can have. Um, and Cavani, perhaps, despite the, the fact that they've got quite clearly got a pretty good link up from the international side, it's, it's, it's not ideal. It's, it's, it's really um, reduced to set pieces, crosses into, in, in, into the box from, from the fullbacks. And, and, and as you rightly point out, there, there is no obvious creative force in that midfield that you know and Bentancur aren't, aren't really going to be providing that for them. Um, in my head, I was like, are you, are you missing a Gaston Ramirez or something like that? But again, you're just going with players that you're familiar with. So it's just, it's not exactly the best predictor. But final game I just want to talk about before, just talk, talk to you about something else before the end um, of the first section. Iran, Spain. So we saw that game um, tonight. Um, plenty of people, again, really predicted Spain to emerge winners um, of that game. Although Iran, based on sort of spurred on from that, that late win against Morocco, first win in 20 years, or, or, or second win in 20 years, I think it was. Um, obviously, we're due that by that. I thought their performance tonight was one of huge amounts of grit, but also tactical organisation as well. They knew they didn't fully commit to counter-attacking, but I thought there was enough there to, to show that they had threat, for example. Um, what did you make of the game? I mean, obvious clash of styles, um, probably the best team in the world to put up against this sort of challenge that Iran would have presented. Um, but in the end, again, whether you want to give him all the credit or not, Diego Costa is the one who emerges with the goal that wins the game. Um, added dimensions to this Spain side this time around, you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it didn't work for the 2014 World Cup. He, you know, it, it, it was still, it was very bizarre that he opted to play for Spain rather than play for Brazil in a home World Cup. But, you know, I don't think either side covered themselves in glory in the 2014 World Cup. Yeah. Um, and he just looks far better off now 
in, in, in this new Spain system that's playing more of a Real Madrid style of football rather than a Barcelona style of football. If that makes sense. Um, you know, Costa is a proper number nine. And, you know, I keep bringing this up about winning ugly. Costa understands how to win ugly. He's a proper bully and he bullies something like that. That goal, he, the first goal he got against Portugal, where he just beats up PK, cuts inside your other Portuguese centre back and slots at home, is, is what you want from a number nine. Yeah, no sympathy for Pepe whatsoever, is there? Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he can do that and he gives, he gives Spain that extra element because for the majority of that game, it was just Spain passing the ball outside Iran's box, 30 yards out, no real penetration. And you need, you, sometimes you need a sledgehammer to get past that. Iran were superb, in my opinion. Um, they were very good value for that draw. Probably could have, probably could and should have got that draw. Um, the VAR overturning the goal, which, you know, was the correct decision. It was offside. I'm very annoyed that VAR spotted it, but <laughs> you live and learn. Um, they're not out the World Cup yet. And I think um, that, that pleases me. You know, I think, the, you know, the, this Iran side, and the story of Iran at this World Cup is 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 quite pleasing to me. Um, you know how they they've got the only kit that you can't really buy, and how players couldn't get boots due to trade sanctions and um, put on to the nation of Iran, so Nike couldn't get them boots. Um, and they've they've gone up to this World Cup and they've played stout, resolute football. You know it may not be the most pleasing on the eye, but you know what Iran are doing, and you you know their game plan, and you know that. They're not playing for a draw. They are playing with the intention to get a goal. It's just they're being sensible about it. And I think the, the time almost worked. Yeah, you're right there. I think as well as that disallowed goal, there was that late chance for Medi Torabi as well, wasn't there, where everything was sort of perfect. You know, the guy nutmegs PK on the right hand side, on the left hand side, puts in a beautiful cross. And um, almost like you'd see on the other side with Ramos steaming in, this guy comes absolutely steaming in. They just can't get it down. But, um, yeah, I completely, completely agree in terms of you, you imagine the context of their build-up to this, to these finals. Even the qualification to these finals was a massive achievement. Even consider that as well. Um, and yeah, just just the coherence of what they were trying to do, the clarity of their game plan was very, very obvious. Of course, they were going to defend in in, in this sort of game, um, but they did do so stoutly. I think they really did reduce Spain to relying on Isco. It was magical again, but you, he's when you're relying on him to produce the exceptional bits of skill just to get a modicum of space in the box. I think he sort of um, emphasizes the the effectiveness of the job you're doing. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, Costa, the player who didn't integrate well into the side during the last tournament, looks far more effective in the side, although there's still a hub of Barca, um, or I guess if you, if you think about just incredible creativeness, we're talking about the lack of number 10s in Uruguay's team, and you look at the number of potential number 10s in this team of Isco and Iesta, um, Thiago Alcantara on the bench, Fabregas not even making it to the yeah. to these finals as well. Um, Coca can play there. There's so much, so much quality in terms of creativity. Um, so David Silva as well, I didn't mention him. <laughs> and yeah, it, when it takes what it did in the end, which was a, a deflection off, off Costa, um, after sort of really battering down the door, um, for that Spain to emerge on this game, it, again, really does um, hammer home the, uh, the the effectiveness of the job that Iran did. So, yeah, I think it, it, that game definitely livened things up for me in, in terms of, again, another 1-0, all 1-0s today in terms of the results. But um, that one, I think, was by far the most enjoyable for me. 
Um, just one thing I wanted to move on just before we close off, Carl, was just um, as we move on back to the, the um, format of England, I guess this weekend into the next game um, <laughs> against Panama uh, on Sunday. Um, obviously on Saturday ahead of that, Belgium play. Uh, and we saw Belgium um, play Panama in their first game. It took them a while for Bobby Martinez's men to get going. Um, Dries Mertens' quality, um, sheer brilliance in that volley, got them going eventually. And then Lukaku um, joins in with a brace there. Um, I'm sure he'll be hoping for a sort of positive World Cup this time around. Uh, really seems to be sort of feeling comfortable in his role in that side, despite them seeming a little bit disjointed at, at times. Um, you were heavily involved in a piece that was uh, released for the Players' Tribune um, this week on Romelu Lukaku, um, a story told by himself really of just uh, his motivations uh, to get to where he has got to in football, the context behind it. Um, and uh, I really thought you could see from the reaction to the piece across across the web, just how positively it, 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 it was received. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that piece and um, I guess sort of your highlights from it just really in, in the, uh, the key takeaways? Um, yeah, it was a, a fantastic a group effort. I, I did very little on this yeah, piece. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's overwhelmingly Romelu Lukaku and his life story, um, and, and the TPT team doing that. And I sent, I simply like tightened up a little bit of punctuation. Um, I, I've given you the credit. Very I've given you the credit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Lukaku is a fascinating person, uh, warm, affable, very, very funny. Um, and I think that comes across in the piece. And I also think his drive comes across. You know, when you look at the fact that, you know, his goal record before the age of 21 it is, some of the best you've ever seen a young player in Europe. He's 25 years of age now and he's the record goal scorer for Belgium already. Um, when you consider he was 16 years of age playing in the playoff final for the Juniper League in Belgium to see who wins the Belgian League at 16. Um, and then you, he, you know, the way he tells you the story is that, you know, he's 11 years of age basically, walks into his kitchen one day. And he sees his mum mixing water to the milk because he realized, because there isn't enough milk to last the week. And he realizes his family's poor and goes, right, I'm going to become a professional footballer and then sort this all out. And then he, he the way he describes it is, I'm going to play, ev- I played every single game like it was a final, whether it was at school, at training, a game, you know, for my club. Or whether it was an actual final, I played every single game like it was a final. And every time he hits the ball, he's not trying to hit it with finesse. Or as he put it, I'm not trying to R1 circle that ball if you play FIFA. <laughs> when he hits that ball, he's trying to remove the leather from it. He's trying to kill you. Um, and it speaks to the, it speaks to the man's drive. You know, this is, this is a player who moves to Chelsea very, at a very young age because his idol was Drogba. It doesn't work out for him and he decides to stake it, you know, stake his claim out for himself, goes to West Brom, eventually gets to Everton for 28 million and they're saying that's a lot of money for such a young player and he, you know, goes to Everton side managed by Roberto Martin and they made it work. And I think if you look, if you ask many Everton fans right now, Everton and players they are right now because they don't have a proper striker, they haven't properly replaced Lukaku because they didn't, properly understand everything Kaku does. And I think when this is all said and done with Belgium, with Ma- with Manchester United as his current side and whatnot, um, we're going to look back and look at the like the amount of goals Lukaku scored and the way he scored them and the amount of assists he put through and say this is 
this guy's up there for being one of the greatest Belgian footballers of all time. Especially. Um, although I don't want him to score against him. Yeah, I thought that was coming at the end. Yeah, well, I mean, no, I think that, that there's so many fascinating stories. I think the World Cup always throws up pretty fascinating stories around players who've gotten to this stage in their career. Um, I think even in spite of, in spite of international football, Lukaku's career has gone from strength to strength and, and a large part is obviously down to the drive that he's shown and the, the determination he's shown. I think yeah, plenty of that comes across in the piece. Um, so I, I definitely encourage you to check that out on the player shooting for sure. Um, Carl, thanks so much for helping us sort of cover those midweek games this endless supply of football that's uh, coming out um, at the moment I will mention we've got more than just Roman Lukaku's piece on the Players Tribune right now we're mm-hmm. currently in the middle of a project called World Cup 32 sure. so we have players and personnel from every single World Cup nation um, so Kiske Honda's story went out yesterday as well his story is fascinating about how essentially Japanese football has changed his mentality as he's yeah gone from a child to an adult and how they've moved it from the schooling system into more of an academy system and how Japan has very clear designs for what it wants to do as a footballing nation. So I recommend that. We've also got the Dream Series, which is um, very similar to World Cup 32, but in podcast form. And then hopefully, um, depending on when this podcast goes out, if it goes up, hopefully for the end of the week before England game on Sunday, we should have a piece from Raheem Sterling and I cannot wait to bring you Raheem Sterling's piece. Um, it, it, it's going to be quite something. Yeah, of course. Plenty of the fans of the, um, sort of the, the listeners to this podcast will be Liverpool fans, but I think there's sort of complicated, complicated relationship with, with Raheem Sterling following his departure. But to be honest, my, my opinion has always been a player who was incredibly talented, still incredibly talented and, uh, made, made a smart move there. And I, I actually want to see him sort of have great success at this tournament as well. So I think, yeah. Um, Definitely look forward to that piece and all the other ones that you were sort of talking about there. I think I'm going to go bookmark that's a Kasuke Honda one as well for sure. But um, yeah, thanks so much, Carl, for coming on that. After this short break, we'll be speaking to Nina on uh, Egypt and uh, Mo Salah and just how frustrated and hungry he's going to be uh, going into next season. So back now and uh, finally sort of moving on to Egypt as we come to the end of this pod here, talking about a campaign that hasn't gone as successfully as they would have liked us, Salah would have liked Nina. Um, it's it's a tough one, especially when you look at the way in which they played both games, You know that, that, that tough late loss to Uruguay. Um, mm. And then, of course, coming up against a host nation, you're always going to find that tough, especially when they're on the wave of confidence that they appear to be on at the moment, Russia. So um, I know you haven't sort of covered Egypt in too much detail, obviously from the Liverpool perspective here, but it's a sad way for his season to end, isn't it? It really is. And I think um, the tragedy started in the Champions League and he's just had um, such a kind of terrible month. You know, you, you factor in that injury and I kind of feel and believe that maybe there might have been a more of a feel good factor about Egypt and around the whole team and the squad and morale had he been, you know, fully fit, you know, regardless of the win or loss in, in the Champions League, you know, had he been a fully fit Mosala, I think there might have been a different prospect altogether. I mean, just that image um, against Uruguay when they conceded the, the late um, the late goal and, you know, just seeing him uh, on the bench and, you know, him sort of, um, you know, putting his head down and just looking absolutely devastated, you know, was actually quite a sad moment in itself because, 
Yeah, we're Liverpool supporters. Um, we're, we're not Egyptian, but there are Liverpool supporters who are Egyptian that we know who, who we have on podcast. But, um, you know, you've got a feel for them because, you know, they've not been in a World Cup for 28 years. And, you know, he, you know, he, he fired them into it, you know, with that iconic penalty. And it's, it's actually really sad from, from that perspective. But, he wasn't fully fit. Um, I, I don't know how you feel, um, Harry. I'd like to have a conversation with you about this, but I kind of felt like he was almost rushed back. It was almost like every, all their hopes were pinned on Mosala. I think from the, from what we've seen of Egypt, he was by far their best player. No, for sure. I think you could see in their second game, obviously in the first game, it's, it's, you've got that sort of situation where you're looking over at the bench, you can see a frustrated figure there. Is he going to come on? Is he going to be the final sub? Um, and really, I think what what you saw was they almost got away with that gamble, didn't they? In terms of you know, yes. dealing with Uruguay, a misfiring Uruguay, Suarez and and Cavani weren't playing well at all. Um, obviously, Cavani hit the post, but Suarez looked like he'd aged about ten years just in in, in a matter of a couple of weeks. So he he wasn't playing too well, and you thought they were about to get away with it. You know, perhaps you know, giving Salah the rest that he needed, but. I think given what you see in the second game or, or what we saw, I, I thought Salah, given the sort of player he is and sort of the strengths that he does possess, he's always going to have an influence on these sorts of games. And you could tell there were flashes here and there when he did get the ball um, of the quality, whether it be just the crispness of the passes he, he's firing around or even just some of the, the pretty intelligent movement he was making. But the difference is, and, and the commentators are pointing it out as well, whereas at Liverpool we're used to seeing um, you know, as find the fastest possible route to get to giving him the ball. Uh, Egypt's build up is a bit far slower, of course, especially when they're sort of contending with a Russia side um, that's you know, prepared to drop deep if, if they need if they need to. And then, yeah, I thought you saw as well. I mean, it's clearly sixty percent, seventy percent fit max, and he's avoiding any sort of physical tussles. And we know ourselves and watching him this season just how much a part of his game, that physical aspect is. I don't think many people perhaps pinpoint that as a big strength of his game, but you'll know as well as I do, Nina, in terms of just how he backs into players, uses his strength yeah. to roll them. Um, and you, you, we were sort of getting a diet Salah performance there, um, one where everyone was clearly relying on him to influence the game. I'm sure he was willing himself to try and influence the game, but um, it was too easy for Russia to, to double up on him, wasn't it? It was too easy, and you know, from a Liverpool perspective, I mean, you know, when when I saw him start, I got really happy, and then you know, the realism kind of kicked in. I thought, well, is he fully fit? And you kind of worry, like, is it going to be a tactic now for the future, where P, you know, like somebody will come into him, will his injury get worse? You know, you've got to think about these things. You've got to think from a Liverpool perspective. I know he wants to play, but I am a Liverpool fan, and I just want him to be fully fit and firing. And you're right, one of his strengths is the way he backs into players, the way he holds the ball, the way he has you know, this um, control and command of, you know, a low sense of gravity. And he's quite a small guy. And, you know, I think people underestimate that. And his pace as well, you know, he is just the all-round perfect kind of striker for Liverpool and he fits that system. And you're right, I think Egypt's build-up play was really slow and it it looked okay. But then I think as soon as um, Russia pretty much scored the first goal, I, I kind of felt like heads just completely dropped and, you know, they, they kind of looked out of ideas and, you know, it could have been far worse because, you know, Russia just started just coming onto them and, you know, started attacking and started playing the football that they were against, almost like against Saudi Arabia. And 
it is really sad and you know it's horrible that you know they you know they won't go as far as you know we he would have liked to and we would have liked to a fully fit Mosala but he you know uh, at least he's made some kind of history you know they've not been in the World Cup for 28 years I believe 1990 was the last time and you know he he scored he, he got a goal it was a great penalty and you know, take those, those positives because it was a tough group and it was a tricky group. Yeah, it was, it, it was always going to be tough. And I think sometimes a lot of the chat prior to sort of Russia kicking off was talking about how they'd failed to develop a squad for this World Cup, you know, ha- having known that it was coming for such a long time. And a lot of the players in that squad are aging and things like that. But I think we've seen as well, you know, host nations always get this boost, especially when they do have a positive first game. And Saudi Arabia sort of helped Russia have that positive uh, Yes. first game out and who knows if Egypt had grabbed that draw against Uruguay and came into this with less pressure facing them it could have been a different game I, I, that's a great point Harry because had the draw been a bit different maybe if Egypt got Saudi first you know uh, get that get that win you'd, you'd like to think maybe it's a win maybe get the easy game out the way first rather than playing oh my god I've got to play Uruguay you know who who are a, a, a great side and then oh god now we've got to play the whole so I think that's a good point that maybe the the sort of schedule didn't do them any favours as well. Yeah, and I think as as well from our perspective, to the Liverpool fans, I mean, I, I was sort of dreading that first game if he was going to come on because you mentioned Uruguay and of course we've got plenty of affinity to Uruguay with Suarez. And, of course. Um, but it's just the way in which, you know, I was speaking to Carl earlier on, the, the actual pair in that team, obviously loads of discussion around Cavani and Suarez, but it's, it's Jimenez and... Uh, and Godin, who've been the more important two so far, and and, and those two are very tough, tough yes. customers. And uh, I, I was concerned about Salah playing in that game for any matter of time because there's you know, there's not going to be any, any love lost between them. To be honest, <laughs> there's, there's going to be tough defending, potentially worse than the injury that he already had. And I, I think what we what we did see in that second game, I mean, probably makes me even more relieved that he didn't have any part to play in the first one because he's, he's what's it been two or three weeks it's a, a dislocated mm-hmm. shoulder so I mean we're seeing what Gareth Southgate in press conferences having dislocated his shoulder somehow from a run in the forest I'm not sure what he was doing around there and it, 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 it's, 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 it's something that takes a while to to heal I mean even when you're not yeah. an athlete so but, but if you're athlete and your you know, key part of your game is running at such a fast you know, such a fast pace it's got to be difficult definitely difficult for you so yeah, it's, it's it's a sad way to for, for things to end for Egypt. I, I thought that there was um, you know, no shortage of endeavour from them in terms of how they played uh, mm. in the World Cup. But I think we noticed that from a number of sides actually in terms of whether it be the final pass or um, that lack of quality in the final third that's really let them down. But there, there did seem to be a clear game plan. Um, it just wasn't you know it wasn't to be. And then Hagazi gets sort of out. How jumped, beaten in the air by that absolute brutal forward that Russia had up for up front as well. I think it was Zuba. Yeah, he was he, he was very impressive as well. So, just moving away then, I guess from sort of Egypt's campaign. Obviously, they'll they'll have one more game to play against Saudi Arabia, um, sort of closing things up. Um, but um, what do you sort of think this means for Mo Salah then coming into next season? Because um, you think about the way in which the season was ending prior to the Champions mm. League final, you know, awards everywhere, um, photo appearances everywhere. He's, he's, he's giving interviews, that smile's there for everybody to see. Final game of the season, you know, beautifully sort of set up for him with collecting all the awards, his daughter's out there, etc. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the sort of 
um, you know, not a fairy tale ending. The Ramos sort of playing the villain, um, injuring him in the final, um, not only denying him the Champions League, but uh, then also denying um, him the ability to play for his nation in in such fully fit in such an important occasion for him. I mean, do you think this is going to light a fire under him for for next season? I certainly hope so. I mean, we we spoke to Neil Jones um, from Goal dot um, com, and uh, we actually put this question forward to him. I thought, you know, could it, you know, how does this sort of pan out for Mo Salah? I mean, we we know he's competitive, we know he's a fighter, we know he's a passionate, passionate guy who puts his all into everything. And, you know, he has had a dreadful month, you know, in terms of he's been really unlucky because, like you said, he has pretty much broken as many records as he possibly can. It's been basically another day and another award for Mo Salah. That was pretty much the story of the season for Mo Salah at Liverpool Football Club. And, you know, to see his, uh, you know, you saw the tears at the Champions League final and, of course, you know, the bitter disappointment with his national team. I think the, I think this and will kind of... Uh, fire him to um, to new levels next season. I think he's going to be hungrier. I think he's a player that always wants to improve, always wants to get better. And I think just by the player that he is and how he speaks and the interviews that he gives, he's got desire, he's he's determined. And I think he's going to have I don't give a fuck kind of attitude. And I think in in hindsight, you know, his World Cup being cut short is is disappointing for him but maybe a massive blessing for Liverpool. You know, he can come back quicker. We can work with him. He can recover. And hopefully we get him in the best possible shape. And I think he'll want to be in the best possible shape as well for next season. And, of course, put some of those uh, disappointment things that happen to him, put them right for next season and, you know, carry on breaking those records. And hopefully, you know, he wins a trophy because... I thought the season that he had for Liverpool, he deserved some silverware. I mean, all the guys did, but him in particular, I thought he was just an absolute superstar in terms of what he was producing in his first season as well. That's pretty difficult and it's pretty phenomenal. He had the world sitting up and watching. No, for sure. I think that that's what makes it sort of even more sort of sad that it has ended this way. But I think that, I mean, once all the dust has settled, I'm sure he's going to look back on this in, in a sort of a with a more rounded perspective to it, I guess it's, 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 it's obviously incredibly tough to do that now when you, when you're right in it. And as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's been all in the space of a month. <laughs> there the, the seems to have been all, the, all, all this bad news, um, sort of concentrated into one bit, but, um, yeah, I think you would sort of hope and expect that he can come back next season, um, produce those positive performances. We know, I mean, he's, he's only going to have more support to do so as we know with the signings that are coming in. Of course. Um, and, uh, perhaps he'll even get himself a little bit of a rest as well in, in next season, which, which, which he certainly didn't have this time around. So yeah, I'll be interesting to see, um, I guess it'll also be interesting to see when he does join up with the rest of the camp as well, because obviously Egypt leaving earlier, but yeah, this injury, hopefully he gets over this quite easily as well, because it's uh, plenty of time to rest now for him. Um, just before we do wrap up, you know, I mean, just moving on from Egypt, I mean, I asked Carl earlier on, I mean, what have you made of the tournament as a whole so far? I mean, no goalless draws is, 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 is sort of the big thing I'm taking from it so far. Yes. Um, <laughs> in spite of how we've got there with what late penalties, you know, VAR helping us out on occasion. Um, do you think it's lived up to expectations so far? You know what? It's been 
it's really strange, right? Because the first set of games for me were entertaining. Like, like you said, some really dodgy own goals. You know, there's been a lot of talking points, and I've enjoyed that factor. I'm not going to say the quality of football's been great, but I think they've been entertaining. But you know, I feel like the second leg of games, uh, you know, so the second, uh, I call it the second game week. You know, the yeah, second yeah. set of fixtures, um, have been quite dull and uninspiring. I think personally, I mean, I've watched most of the games. I think I've only missed two games um, so far, um, but I've I've enjoyed it. I think it's been quite fun. I, you know, what I've liked about it, it's football without having a, a commitment to a team, and I've enjoyed that. I've just been watching football. I, I don't, as you know, Harry, I don't, I don't really support anyone, so I'm just going out there, just enjoying the games. But here's the thing, for me. 98 will always be the best World Cup, <laughs> okay. right? I'm just going to put that out there. It was the best World Cup. It had talent. It had quality. It had everything, even some really, really dodgy sending offs. Like I went back to watch a documentary and I forgot how soft some of these sending offs and some of these decisions were, but it had everything in terms of quality. I feel like the big boys haven't quite delivered and I think that's what it's missing. I think once the, the big teams really start performing, I think that's when you've really got something on your hand. I think Spain have been pretty decent. I think they've kind of performed, as, I mean, quite um, quite lucky yesterday, um, last night against Iran. But as a whole, it's been okay. I'm not saying the quality's been great, but I've just enjoyed it. It's been thoroughly entertaining. And I've got no qualms about VAR. I know a lot of people are kicking off about it, but I think it's been all right. Phil Neville's not, he's not a fan. He's absolutely not a fan, and I, I, I know you guys have already spoken about the quality of punditry at this uh, mm. at this World Cup. He, he's certainly not covered himself in any glory whatsoever, especially considering the the, the position he finds himself in as well. But um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that perhaps the quality hasn't been you know, top notch. I mean, we, we were all a little, a little bit spoiled when we in that first that first week with Spain, Portugal being so entertaining. Yes. None of us mm. expected that. I think, given how Portugal. Usually play to be honest, but um, it's been good things. Sort of upsets into Japan beating Colombia. Yes, uh, exactly. We spoke exactly. earlier about Senegal's or Sadio Mane getting that first win for. Uh, you know what? I I kind of made a prediction on one of the previous World Cup. Um, we covered the England game, and I said uh, they haven't played yet, but I think Senegal might be fun. You know, are going to be my exciting African team, and you know what? They're living up to that. Everything about them, their fans, their coach. Um, just everything about them. Uh, I think Senegal are the the darling team. The coach is great. He, he's, he's it's fabulous. Contributed so many gifts already to the yes. which, which is a wonderful thing in itself. As well. I just the one where he's using his hands like he's like I don't know. It's like it's like he's charging up his hands. Yes. It's, 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 it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and and then of course of course we we we've got our Argentina Croatia to. To yes. look forward to it, and, and, and actually, one of the interesting things about the, the World Cup so far, I think, has been some of the smaller teams—not um, not some small teams, but some of the bigger teams that we be used to uh, progressing comfortably. They haven't quite done it, and, and, and what that means is that the draw is getting a little bit more interesting. And it's actually quite likely now that we, we could get encounters like uh, you know, Brazil, Germany, or France, Argentina, mm-hmm. which is you know, great that we're going to get those perhaps What's earlier than we expected. What's been your favourite so far? Because I've actually enjoyed Spain, uh, Portugal, Iran. I think that one's still. Pretty Pretty much open. Yeah, no, I, I think for sure. I, I, th- I thought I was going to enjoy um, Group D the most in, in, ahead of time, just with Argentina, Croatia, Nigeria yes. as well. But I think, yeah, I, I, I think it has been Spain's group actually, because um, yeah, all, all the 
sort of narrative around Spain coming into the tournament and would they be affected, would they not be affected? And, and I do think out of everybody I've seen, they're the most impressive team I've seen for sure. And, and I, I saw a tweet as well and I thought it was perfect. Morocco might be the best team yeah. to be with zero points. Uh, staggering, yeah. <laughs> yes. I felt, felt so bad for them. And um, mm. I think the other one I've I really enjoyed as well is uh, Group F just because Mexico's performance against Germany yes. was, 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 was just so brilliant. So, yeah, there's been, there's, been, there's been plenty to enjoy. I'm sure there'll be plenty more to enjoy. We're sort of gorging on football every single day. So it is, it is good that, as you mentioned, that it's, it's football without sort of any uh, emotional investment. So I can just enjoy it this time. But um, anyway, thanks so much, Dina, for helping us out there with just Egypt and uh, talking Mo Salah. So there'll be no shortage of Salah conversations uh, leading into the next couple of months as we approach the new season. But um, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, Thanks to Carl earlier on for giving us all that insight as well, and especially all the information on the on the great work coming out from the Players Tribune that he's working on. So be sure to check that out. And uh, uh, I should be back shortly with another World Cup pod, um, covering more action, more VAR, I'm sure, and uh, hopefully no goalless draws. So yeah, join us again soon. Network.